Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On tonight's programme, with more than 40 years at the coalface of reporting on religious and social affairs in this country and beyond, our colleague Joe Little looks back at what he considers to be some of the most defining moments over the past four decades. But first, last Sunday was World Day of the Poor. Introduced by Pope Francis and now in its third year, it was commemorated for the first time in Dublin at Christchurch Cathedral, with the Homeless Jesus sculpture as a focal point. Similar events took place around the world, where other casts of the sculpture are located. Well, our reporter Onyo O'Neill was there as members of the public arrived with non-perishable food items to be donated to the Mendicity Institution, a charity which works to empower people who are experiencing homelessness. The bells of Christ Church ringing out before a special service marking World Day of the Poor. Here in the cathedral grounds, with sounds of traffic and passers-by all around, at first glance it seems like an all-too-familiar scene in Dublin City. A figure lying on a bench covered with a blanket, trying to stay warm. It's only upon a closer look that you realise that all is not quite what it seems. This is the Homeless Jesus sculpture by Canadian artist Timothy P. Schmaltz, cast in bronze. The sculpture can be found in more than 40 other cities around the world. Here in Dublin, it's where members of the public have been invited for the first time to come and place non-perishable food items, which will then be donated to the homeless. Among the people I met was Margaret. Every morning on my way to work, I pass the homeless Jesus on the seat here. And in winter and summer, he seems just to be lying there. And the first time I saw him, my heart stopped because I thought it was a person. And every morning I sort of pass and I look over. And it reminds me that the homeless people and the people who don't have anything are actually people, not numbers. And obviously this is National World Day of Poverty. So I thought today, gosh, I wonder what I could do today. And then I was flicking through the Irish Times doing the crossword and I saw this was on today here again and it reminded me, so I came. So this is actually the first year that they've asked people to come and bring non-perishable foods. So can I ask, what exactly have you got here in your bag? Well, I did, what I thought was, what can I bring that maybe is cross-culture? So there's noodles and rice and pasta and uh, some Chinese noodles. And then I went and bought pasta sauce and sauce so that you could make a meal quite cheaply. Just with that, it would be comforting and warm. And a few tins of soup. And let me see what else. Oh, um, a tin of beans, just the Irish content. You have to have the tin of beans. Yeah, I of think course. so too. Uh, yeah. Exactly, yeah, as yeah. you said, Irish content. Yeah. I think everyone has to have the old tin of beans. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you for coming along That's and enjoy well. the service. Thanks so much. As members of the public continue to come and go, leaving their food items around the statue of the homeless Jesus, a prayer service begins, which has been led by the Reverend Abigail Science, the Dean's Vicar at Christ Church. God has blessed us but still God's children go hungry. Lord, have mercy. mercy. I caught up with Abigail as the choir and congregation joined the service and song. I noticed that today a lot of people brought non-perishable foods. So what was the reasoning behind that? And was that a call out, a purpose call out you did via social media, was it, to get people to bring bring some food? It was indeed. And it actually stems from... Uh, the Homeless Jesus sculpture, which is on our grounds. Uh, The sculptor, a Canadian sculptor who'd originally done that work, uh, and a benefactor who'd funded them being placed in cities around the world, uh, they actually were encouraging all the cities that have one of the sculptures this year to hold some kind of event, marking World Day the Poor. 
uh, and we were contacted about that. We felt like it was certainly something we could get in on and be part of, and we just thought that would be a very appropriate symbol that we started our service today gathering around that sculpture uh, and bringing those items and, in a sense, making that our own act of commitment to contribute to the needs of the poor and, in fact, to contribute to change in our society. Before a special service began inside the cathedral, I spoke with the very Reverend Dermot Dunn, the Dean of Christ Church, about the kinds of reactions he observes as people catch sight of the sculpture. It's a very interesting uh, reaction. I purposefully don't have any explanation near the homeless Jesus. It's there to speak for itself. People come in and they look at it and they wonder what it's about. and they, they, they don't get the significance straight away. And Timony's sculpture left a piece of the seat vacant for people to sit on. So it's an interactive sculpture. So they go over and they sit on it, and then they suddenly realise the holes in the feet. And it suddenly dawns on them what it is that is Jesus uh, on a bench. And, 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 and it catches them by absolute surprise. And, and the sculpture speaks for itself. So do you find then when even people are coming in, at first they're taking a glance and then it's a second glance, and as you said now, it's an interactive piece, so possibly it might bring people into the church also? Well, it certainly sparks conversation and sparks thought. And I remember, uh, if I may say, one story of... Um, uh, it must be three years ago when we had a great snow here and we had to close the cathedral because uh, the way in was impassable. And uh, Dublin was as quiet as you could get because no one was moving. And there was one person, one young man, at the gate, the closed gate, um, in front of the cathedral, and he was, he was looking in. And I was inside at the time, it was in the morning, and I went up to him and I said, are you OK? And he said, is that man on the bench OK? And for me... That spoke yeah. what the homeless Jesus is about. That, uh, for, for this young man to, 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 to be suddenly uh, the care, and, and it shows that in all of us that base human care for, 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 for the less well-off is there. It just needs to be touched. Father John Collins is a member of the board of the Mendisti Institution. At 200 years old, it's one of the oldest working charities in Dublin. Its mission is to disrupt and prevent the cycle of homelessness by empowering individuals to become self-sufficient members of their communities. Today's non-perishable food items provided by the public will be donated to the organisation. The mendicity or the mendo as we uh, call it, you know, after 200 years, we really would have hoped that that kind of uh, difficulty in people's lives would have moved on, that society would be able to care for those and for everybody equally. But clearly we're still in a place where that's not happening and we're still going. Absolutely. And, and do you know what, I actually will ask you about that because um, in, in September, just gone, it was reported that over 10,000 people are homeless in Ireland. And what really got me was that 4,000 of those are children. So, like, what is it we're doing wrong? What can we do? You know, you're there on the ground. What needs to change? Well, I think it needs to be a mindset. 
I think that it's one thing for us to blame government. And of course, it's government's responsibility at the end of the day to uh, make sure that we're all treated equally. And that includes children. And it is, you're right, it, it is a sadness in today's society that we're still talking about homelessness and children in the same sentence. And I don't think anybody, whether they're in the church, whether they're in uh, they're not church going or whether they're in government or not. And uh, everybody, I think, wants to see that change. I think if we all work together. Uh, I think that's the one thing we can all do. Let's all work together and stop working against each other because sometimes uh, that can be counterproductive. Absolutely. And the theme of the day is based on the Psalm 918. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. Dermot, what more can we do, I suppose, as a nation um, to help the needy not be forgotten and the hope of the poor not perish? I think um, my favourite saying is from Mahatma Gandhi. And he said that the greatest sign of a civilised society is how they care for those who are less well-off, for the poorest among them. And I think that is a saying that we need to hear over and over again because it's not an optional extra. It's not an option. Neither is it a twee or nice thing to do that actually is part of our human calling, our human nature, to reach out to others who are in need. So therefore we need to get that message imbibed in our very beings that it's not just an option to care for the poor. It is a deep, deep need to do it. As light begins to fade on Dublin city streets, the sounds of Evensong fill the cathedral on this World Day of the Poor. Onya O'Neill reporting from Christchurch Cathedral, where World Day of the Poor was commemorated last Sunday. And if you happen to be in that part of Dublin city centre sometime, you might take a few moments to see the Homeless Jesus sculpture or even take a seat on the bench. Next this evening, he's been a familiar face on our screens and voice on our airwaves for more than 40 years, bringing us the latest coverage of religious and social affairs. But RTE's Joe Little is about to step away from the media spotlight as retirement now beckons. Joe, thanks for joining us in the studio this evening. Let's step our way through some of the of the stories that you would have been involved in. I'm going back to 1979. Surely at that particular period, the Pope's visit to Ireland must have featured on your radar. Yes, it, it, it's featured in a surprising way on my radar. Maybe they thought I got a good grasp of my topic. But or, anyway, they said, off you go and cover the Universal Church when it arrives in <laughs> Louth and in Kildare uh, at, at the Killineer um, site. Uh, north of Drogheda, and then subsequently the next morning over to Maynooth. Mm. But what's your outstanding memory of Killineer? Because it was a fairly major event, particularly when Pope John Paul II addressed the crowd. Yes, uh, it had been intended that Pope John Paul II would go north of the border. But that summer, uh, two atrocities on the same day, one in Mullachmore in County Sligo, where the IRA... Uh, killed using a bomb uh, Lord Mountbatten and his wife and two others in their boat when they were just offshore Mullockmore. And on the same day, they used an improvised roadside device to kill 18 British soldiers at narrow water uh, outside Newry uh, in a 
bomb that was detonated from the Republic side of, of Carlingford Lock. And this changed the atmosphere considerably. Um, I mean, there were risks anyway, bringing a pope to Northern Ireland and the state it was in, but this put it out of court altogether. So instead, uh, they turned to the southern part of the ecclesiastical province of Armagh because it comes over the border, mm. it straddles the border, and Kilinir near Drada, is, is part of that uh, province. So the thinking was, here is a location which technically is in, it is in the Armagh province, so northerners who would have wanted to see Pope John Paul in the north could travel down and get the next best thing. Did you know what he was going to say? No idea. I know that uh, Archbishop Cahal Daly, uh, who was involved at the time as Archbishop of Vardan Clonmacnoise, was very aware of, you know, the the politics of the situation and the role of the church. And it is said that he drafted the he drafted the speech. The famous obviously. words. The famous words. Let's hear them now. Now, I wish to speak to all men and women engaged in violence. I appeal to you in language of passionate pleading. On my knees, I beg you to turn away from the path of violence and to return to the ways of peace. In the name of God, I beg you, return to Christ who died so that men might live in forgiveness and peace. He is waiting for you, longing for each one of you to come to him so that he may say to each of you, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Words heard in 1979 at Killineer. Let's roll forward to closer to the time where you found yourself becoming a religious and social affairs correspondent. In September of 1995, you were about nine months into the job and your colleague at the time, Ursula Halligan, named a name which started another story. Yes, so in September 1995, uh, the programme, Primetime, had named Father Ivan Payne as the Dublin priest who had abused Andrew Madden when he was an altar boy in Payne's parish of Cabra in Dublin. And Ursula Halligan revealed that two years earlier, in 1993, Payne had made an out-of-court settlement of £27,500 with Madden using a loan from the diocesan authorities and which had been okayed by Archbishop Desmond Connell. The report on Primetime added that the payment had been made through a firm of solicitors used by the Archdiocese. Here's how Dr Connell's spokesman at the time, Father John Dardis, explained the decision to the programme. The solicitors for the man in question approached the priest and they talked about a settlement. The different lawyers got together and talked about a settlement. It was clear fairly early on that the priest couldn't come up with the money that was, that was being talked about. So he, or lawyers acting for him, approached the Archbishop and said, this is the situation we're in. The Archbishop then had, had two choices. And he could say, I'm not responsible, this is your problem, you sort it out. And then no one really would have been, would have been helped. 
Or he could say, this is your problem, you're responsible, and I'm not going to bail you out. But I will give you a loan for which, you're, for which you'll be responsible in pay, for paying back and for which I will hold you responsible to pay back. And that, in fact, is what's actually happening. The priest has paid back, um, I think it's about a fifth of the loan so far. On hearing that explanation, though, that triggered something in your own memory. It did. Uh, I, I checked the record because the previous May, uh, that is about four months earlier, I had had my first sit-down interview with Archbishop Connell in the library in Archbishop's house in Drumcondra on a totally different subject. Uh, it was about vocations. And uh, when we were finishing up, I decided to ask him a question about what the diocesan policy was on helping priests who would ask for assistance in financially compensating uh, sex abuse victims. I have compensated nobody. I have paid out nothing whatever in compensation. And it is my policy that where a priest is uh, guilty and where he wishes to make an out-of-court settlement, that is his responsibility and the diocese does not pay for that. So the finances of the diocese uh, are not in any way used uh, to uh, settle, um, to make settlements of that kind. The offending priest must find his own resources. The offending priest must find his own resources, yes. That particular episode resulted in some threats of legal action. Yes, Archbishop Connell uh, threatened to sue over suggestions that he'd facilitated the compensation payment uh, to Mr Madden, but a case wasn't taken. And the Irish Times had demanded his resignation in an editorial and I met him uh, when that happened in our radio studio and he turned to me and he said, look what you've done to me. He obviously felt very offended by the my bringing up what he had said and the important part of what he had said was that the finances of the diocese were in no way used you know, to, to compensate and they had been used in a fashion to compensate it was a way of keeping it in-house to give a loan. The person wouldn't have to go to a bank or a credit union and explain the situation. It was all done in-house. And um, I think that Archbishop Connell felt that he was technically correct in saying that compensation hadn't been paid because, as Father Darius said, a fifth of the loan had been repaid by pain. And uh, obviously they were confident the rest of it was going to be paid off but they were using finances of the diocese to assist in, 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 in the keeping secret of these settlements. And there were new voices coming on the scene too because we're now, in the timeline of things, coming towards the second divorce referendum and, and, and a change of, of tone, change of attitude. Yes, uh, the, the second divorce referendum was, you're quite right, fought out in the shadow of this emerging clerical child sexual abuse scandal. And particularly in the shadow of what appeared to be cover-ups of the scandal. And uh, in the first divorce referendum uh, in the previous decade, it was quite obvious that the uh, opponents of divorce were going to win and there was really no need for any major intervention. But it was clear in the lead-up to polling day that things were a lot closer in the opinion polls and the um, government were on the, on the cusp of, you know, winning the campaign. 
And an extraordinary thing happened. Uh, Pope John Paul II intervened. And he spoke uh, to an audience, a general audience in the Vatican, uh, two days before the vote, and he addressed the Irish in the, the hall. And here's what he said. I extend a special welcome to the pilgrims from Ireland. And I invite you to pray all the more intensely these days for the welfare of marriage and the family in your country. Our Savior has shown how the nature of the love that unites a man and a woman in marriage and the good of the children call for the total fidelity on the part of the spouses and an unbreakable unity between them. I urge everyone to reflect on the importance for society of the indissoluble character of the marriage bond. So we carried these comments on the 6-1 television news um, and, and for the 9 o'clock news bulletin, uh, we, we were planning to carry them, but we also sought the view of the late theologian Father Vincent McNamara, Kiltegan missionary priest living in Dublin. And I asked him, would it be sinful for Catholics to vote for the government's divorce proposal? No, it wouldn't be sinful. Um, our bishops, of course, have made clear their own assessment of the situation, their own judgment about this. But I think they have acknowledged that a Catholic can and should and indeed must in conscience uh, make up his or her mind about the issue and that um, they are entitled to disagree with the judgment of the bishops on the issue and to vote yes if that's their considered opinion. And I don't think anything the Pope has said changes this in any way. Father Vincent McNamara speaking there. And the, the divorce proposal, as it turns out, was carried by less than one percentage point of a margin. And some experts said that equated to one vote in every ballot box around the country. That's how slim it was. And many no supporters blamed Father McNamara and put him under a lot of pressure, I understand. And they blamed RTE for putting Pope John Paul II's remarks in context rather than just carrying them without any challenge. We've been looking back with with hindsight, but I also wanted to just capture a positivity in, 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 the, in the coverage and the stories as well. Because when you look at the arrival of Pope Francis to Ireland, it very much brought back into focus some of the really good work that's being done. Yes. Um, when Pope Francis visited uh, the country last August, 12 months, in my view, the highlight was his meeting with the homeless people at the Capuchin Food Centre in Bow Lane in the centre of the city. And Pope Francis urged them to trust the Capuchin Fathers, saying they'll give you things you need, but listen to the advice they give as well. And if you have a doubt, a pain or a hurt, speak to them. This was the kind of church where he says pastors should know the smell of their sheep, that they should cry with their people. And uh, he was also saying that a church, uh, when, when he was at the centre, that a church which moved away from its people wouldn't survive. Joe, as we are looking back and, and you're looking forward, I'm presuming, there's probably still one pivotal story that stands out for you. Yes, I think that the, it was the story which 
overshadowed Pope Francis's visit here, and it is the ongoing story of survivors of abuse within church institutions. It torpedoed the papal visit to Ireland. The Pope obviously had to deal with that head-on when he was here. And on at the end of the first day of, of his visit, he went to the papal nunciature in Cabra and he had a 19-minute meeting with eight survivors of clerical sexual abuse and of institutional abuse. And afterwards, two survivors of institutional abuse, Paul Redmond of the Coalition of Mother and Baby Home Survivors who had been born in a mother and baby home in Castle Pollard, and Claude Malone from Beyond Adoption Ireland, who'd been born in the home uh, called St. Patrick's on the Navan Road, a very large institution indeed. They uh, spoke with RT News about their conversation with Pope Francis. We're hopeful that um, he will challenge what he referred to as the high church or the elite within the church who are guilty of corruption and cover-up. And he, he was stunned us all by referring to them as caca. And his translator was quite taken aback and clarified with him, but he literally said that they were filth in a toilet. What we asked was a question for the 100,000 women and children to say that they didn't commit a sin, that they didn't do anything wrong, that it wasn't a mortal sin to go looking for your mother or for the mother to look for their child. So he's going to say that tomorrow, I think, at the end of his Mass. So Paul Redmond and there finally Clodagh Malone uh, speaking about that uh, lengthy, emotional and quite graphic uh, exchange with Pope Francis. But... The upshot of that was that Pope Francis innovated when composing his address at the Papal Mass in the Phoenix Park the next day. And he wrote a piece saying, and delivered it from the altar, saying that far from it being a mortal sin for children born in mother and baby homes to seek out their mothers or for mothers who've been there to seek out their children, it was a mortal sin to forbid them to do so. And that was very reassuring for many of the people who had experienced the kind of domineering attitude that because they were born outside wedlock, they really had no rights. And because they'd had children outside wedlock, they'd had no rights and were to be subjugated by the church. Instead, Pope Francis was encouraging them to to find the warmth of human love and to try to reconnect before their parent or their child shuttled off this mortal coil. With your over 40 years' work in this particular area, has it informed your own life? I think it has informed my own life. I have uh, seen church leaders uh, try to come to terms with a very new situation where what had been kept secret for centuries within the church was being thrown out there in the open and they were being challenged to credibly respond to the pain of the victims. And I do remember Cardinal Cahill Daly um, saying to me at our last meeting, he said, Joe, power corrupts, power corrupts. And he had a very sibilant way of of, of, of saying things. He also said to me that his greatest regret was not involving the laity more in the life of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Joe Little, thank you. Thank you, Michael. And that's all we've time for this week on The Leap of Faith from producer Sheila Callan and me, Michael Cummins.
Good night.